This is the Idea Time Podcast with Dr. Joe North. Welcome to the Idea Time Podcast. Tune in every week for practical tips, strategies, and interviews that will help you to achieve greater professional and business success by thinking more creatively. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe North. I'm really pleased to welcome on today's podcast, Mark Brown, who's Chief Executive of the Dolphin Index. He is a published author on innovation and a real superstar in the innovation world. So I am so pleased to have Mark here with us today. So a big welcome, Mark. How are you doing? Joe, that's very kind. I'm very well. I'm delighted to be with you on this podcast, which I understand is your first of many. It is. It is. So thank you for being my inaugural guest. So um, tell us a little bit about where you are today, Mark. And you're, are you up in Scotland today? No, we've, uh, after six years in Scotland, we've relocated uh, to Herefordshire, partly because we have a lot of clients in England, uh, but our hearts, I think, are more in Scotland, so we probably will return. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful, Scotland, up there, where you were. And chronometrically, in many ways, it's as easy to get to the big cities around Europe from, from Inverness than it is, in fact, uh, driving from Herefordshire. So, uh. <laughs> Yeah, so easier, easier access. So tell me, um, just to start us off and warm us up, can you tell us uh, what you are either reading or watching at the moment? It doesn't have to be innovation related. It can be anything. So what are you really into reading or watching? Uh, I've been particularly interested in the work on what's referred to as the three principles, uh, which is a sort of do-it-yourself guide to having a quieter mind mm. uh, at work. And if you look at a lot of businesses, the, the, the badge of being busy is beginning to be beginning to be seen as somewhat, uh, uh, well, unhelpful to have a really busy, rushing mind all the time. Yeah. Uh, and there's one consultancy in the UK, I think, called One Thought, who are specialising in trying to help executives generally have quieter, less, less noisy monkey minds. The assumption being that by being a bit quieter and being a bit more centred, uh, you actually perform better, you make better decisions, and uh, you're also more creative. Yes. So I've, I've always been aware of the need for the quieter mind, because when you talk to people about where they are when they had most of their best ideas, they'll very often refer to some time when they're, they may have been thinking hard about a problem, but then they might be relaxing, driving, jogging, meditating, whatever. Uh, so I've got a lot of time for, for the argument that uh, to be really effective in business, we very often need to be able to have a stiller mind. And of course, that's where social media can be a problem because we're constantly getting revved up by the, the next tweet, the next LinkedIn connection. Yes, definitely. And we get that dopamine hit, don't we? That, uh, which, which reinforces the need to sort of check and fidget and, and yeah. keep looking at the screen. So uh, that sounds really interesting. And and I think you're getting to see some CEOs who are boasting not carrying their phone with them or not, not actually uh, looking at it too much because they do want to inhabit a quieter, uh, more, more intelligent mind rather than a, a nicotine, caffeine, rushing mind. Yes, no, so, so true. And the intelligent mind is a really nice link actually into 
uh, how we met, your work with the Dolphin Index and innovation. I think we met, I'm, I was trying to remember the year, was it possibly 2008, something like that? I think so. Yeah. And, and you were a very important person in a big, uh, big rail organisation. I, well, I don't know if I was big and important. I, I was the commercial director for Northern Rail and we, we, um, we used the, the Dolphin Index across the business to really assess how we were doing with innovation. So well, I, think, I think you did a good job at actually not only measuring the culture but beginning to shift it, doing what we call the Dolphin Shift. Yes, the Dolphin Shift, absolutely. So I, I want to really get into that. Um, can you start us off by telling us a bit about your story and how you came to be so passionate and, um, and, and well, well informed and researched around innovation. How did all that happen? Uh, when, when I try and make sense of the story, I probably go back to about age 18, when I remember standing by a particular gate by a house we had in Wales uh, and making a decision that went along the lines of, I'm not going to believe anything because so often when you believe something, people seem to become too certain and stuck. Uh, and so I sort of made my first vow to try to think openly. But of course, what I didn't realize is that the decision to not believe anything was itself a fixed mindset. So uh, I was already caught in my own dogma. <laughs> I've always had a dogmatic dislike of dogma, and that may be to do with my family, so that, that was one angle. I was very interested in why some people seem to be more open, other people more closed. Mm. I was also aware during those years of living in the Midlands in the UK, uh, that watching people come out of factories, for example, in Birmingham, people very often seem to be rather sad. I'm, I'm thinking of a particular day where people are coming out of what was then the British Leyland plant at, at Longbridge. Uh, and people had caps on, it was a wet, grey day. It altogether felt ra a rather miserable existence. I, I remember seeing an ad on uh, an old advertisement on a factory wall which said, hands wanted. And of course, that was a very honest advertisement because people didn't want the inconvenience of souls, brains, bladders. What they wanted was a pair of hands. Wow. It just seemed to me that work in those days, not for everyone, but could be quite a dull affair. So. Uh, these two streams, the one, the interest in the open mind, and also the idea that surely work could be more joyous and people could be more effective at work, those two streams began to run forward in my mind and were later on to combine in the work I do now, which is how do you create the optimally innovative, creative individual team and organization? Because I think for the, f well, not necessarily the first time ever, but in many jobs, I think it's now possible for people to have really quite brilliant lives at work because they're deeply engaged in a way that drives a brilliant organization, mm. in a way that if you've got a social conscience as well, you can also be helping create more of a brilliant world. So I think it's really exciting to see that people can be powerfully engaged and on fire at work in ways that really help the performance of the business, in ways that really help the community and the well-being of the planet. Uh, and that's what I, <laughs> I sort of privately refer to myself as Wotopia. Not Utopia, but Utopia with a W, because uh, although Utopia is unachievable, I think Wotopia, we're beginning to move in that direction. And 
Smart organizations, I think, are beginning to realize they have this huge untapped potential of the passion and intellect and creativity of their employees. And if you look at those firms that adopt less of a top-down strategy and more of an autonomous, empowering strategy, you see these firms, according to some research, grow really significantly. Mm. So enabling your people to have brilliant lives at work actually helps fuel the brilliant organization. Uh, and I think we may be missing a trick because many organizations, I think, are, are still too hierarchical, not giving people enough autonomy, not giving people an opportunity to learn. Uh, but I think uh, you probably remember that lovely book uh, by Daniel Pink called Drive, mm. which is a very nice summary of the research on motivation, which shows so clearly that if you give people autonomy, an opportunity to learn and a purpose larger than profit, they really are unstoppable. Yeah. So if I, you know, if, if we've got people listening who they may be uh, an entrepreneur, they may have started their own business, it might have been running for a while, or they might be an employee in a larger organization, Mark. And if they don't, if they're not experiencing, you know, utopia, they're not experiencing that passion at work, how, what advice would you give them to, to create that for themselves and to help achieve that? Well, it's a, great, <laughs> it's a great question. My experience tends to more be with uh, elephants and dinosaurs, by which I mean organizations that are more mature, that may have reached their peak performance and may be beginning to go over from peak into decline, where, for example, you get the giant hairball of bureaucracy, uh, administrivia is bogging people down. But just to answer your question specifically, I tend to think of those people who start their own businesses as if, if they've been smart, they will have chosen the area about which they are fairly passionate anyway. Yeah. And because, and because they're highly, they have high autonomy, they are the boss. Uh, usually I don't see motivation as so much of a problem there. I think where it is more of a problem is in organizations that have existed for some time. Uh, and I've been asking myself this question, how do you get a, an employee to be constructively troublesome in the sense of alert his or her boss, that in fact they've got much more to offer if only they could be given more opportunity to use their intellect and to use their imagination. Uh, and I'm thinking that we should, you and I should perhaps provide employees with a nice little draft email note that they could send to their boss uh, in a constructive way saying, there's more potential here, please use me. Um, because I, th I think the other thing people forget as, as individuals is what an extraordinary long time we're going to be dead for. Mm. And if people really get a sense of just how long they're going to be dead for, I think many people would run screaming from their existing buildings and places of work saying, no, I'm not going to waste my life. I really want to do something more engaging. I want to be more passionate. And if you look at... Um, I'm just trying to remember the name of the firm in the city, uh, city of London, uh, where it, for, for people who particularly got fed up with working in large organizations who don't think they're being sufficiently rewarded, you go along to these guys and they'll try and find you uh, a workplace which is actually going to give you more engagement, more passion. Uh, from the point of view of the employer, the message is really very simple, or the boss. Uh, develop your people so that they can take on more autonomy. 
That means you're giving them an opportunity to learn and try and give them a focus larger than just profit. Mm -hmm. And that means that the empowered uh, organization is probably going to have more engaged employees. The one qualification I'd make there is particularly if you're a CEO or a director, is that when you talk about empowering everybody to be creative and innovative, you can find the, the boss or the chairman or chairwoman may go slightly pale because they fear chaos. Yeah. So what I would say is that in any firm, you do need light touch control. You need empowerment and creativity within a framework so that you don't get disastrous mistakes. Uh, and that's one of the really interesting things I think about innovation is that organizations are, try are struggling with this question of if you're going to be innovative and creative, particularly in a more radical way, you're bound to have to try out experiments, some of which will fail. And those are what I call glorious mistakes, or what I call must-makes. That is, you must make them so as to be able to move ahead. Yes. But it's also important that employees understand where they never want to see mistakes, as in the, 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 the very sad case of the Grenfell Tower in London. where, where Safety, you know, safety oper you know, operations. Exactly. Uh, People need to understand where yeah. mistakes are disastrous and what I call never makes. And unless you're really clear in an organization about must makes versus never makes, uh, you'll very often find the top team will be concerned that they, they don't want to appear on page one of a national newspaper in the country showing that they've really had a major cock up. Yeah, yeah, so uh, definitely. And, uh, and that's the thing, isn't it? I've always found that asking people in organizations specific questions or, or give it you know asking to help solve particular challenges can lead to greater innovation around an area where you want it to go so i think it's about being really clear yeah in terms of where you want that innovation you know what sort of areas and it might be customer experience or learning i think as well a lot of organizations think today with, with everything moving so quickly on the technology front that innovation is all about tech it's all about digital and it's not it's, it is that, but it's also about customer experience. It's about how people learn and experience training. It's, uh, yeah. it's about you know how, how you do your operations and maybe the quirky turn, tone of voice you use in your marketing or whatever. Absolutely. It's the, uh, I mean, in many ways, organizations have got locked into the software hardware uh, sort of theme of disruption. But I think where you and I focus as well is on being, helping people update their wetware, yeah. that is making sure that the brain is not locked into the patterns of the past and people are actually seeing new opportunities. I think uh, I, I'm very fond of that old quote by the American academic Gary Hamill, who, 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 who I think, uh, I think I've just got the quote here, experience is valuable only to the extent that the future is like the past. In industry after industry, the terrain is changing so fast that experience is becoming irrelevant and even dangerous. Mm. And that just shows that more than ever, we need the fresh, open minds of, of employees. And I think that's a really interesting challenge because once you've been inside an organization for a matter of months or certainly years, you tend to catch the dominant mindset of the industry, so much so that it's only if you leave and go somewhere else do you realize how locked in your thinking has become. Yeah. So actually making sure that you have sufficient uh, neurodiversity of employees, people from different backgrounds, different styles of thinking, bringing in fresh minds, perhaps borrowing people from other organizations to help you with uh, an idea session to bring fresh minds, bringing in yeah. students to 
help come up with fresh ideas. Uh, interviewing new employees after three months to ask them the question, what are the things we do around here which are quite daft? Yeah. Uh, it's so easy to get locked into a dominant worldview. Uh, I think one of my, a couple of my favourites um, things to, to you know that I remind people of are firstly, have you got ten years in certain number of years as, as appropriate? Have you got ten years experience, or is it the same one or two years repeated, repeated over and over? I think that's important okay. to, to think about. And the other thing is that if you want to be the best in your industry then don't look at the best in your industry for inspiration. You've got to look outside the industry and bring that fresh thinking in. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, I'm completely with you on the, on, on the wetware and the neurodiversity because that's, that's really critical. And one of the things I'm, I'm fascinated to hear, and I know you run, you run amazing innovation workshops and, and really help businesses with these, is on your uh, description on your website, you, you use the terms mindscaping and heartscaping. Absolutely you know, beautiful terms. And I'd love to learn more about those when you're in, talking about positive relationships. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's a wonderful example of creativity. People very often think about creativity just as coming up with a, an idea that is novel and useful. Uh, whereas I think when you look at... Uh, I, I'm probably focusing on four areas at the moment in terms of helping organizations. And I probably know a bit about doing two of them and I probably know less about doing the other two. And those four are, uh, first of all, how do you help people be flexperts? That is, that is to have the open, creative and informed mind because the expert by him or herself very often gets hardening of the categories uh, not hardening of the arteries, they develop this dominant worldview. So how do you help people meet, tenderize their own thinking? Mm. Uh, and I think I've got some good ideas on that, although I'm constantly aware of how easily one becomes a dinosaur and not a dolphin. I was at a conference this week where a really lovely Copenhagen architect called Tina Sabi was talking about how they were innovating in the design of Copenhagen as a city. And just one simple innovation they come up with is pavements with lots of little holes in so that the water drains off. And I was thinking, lovely example, I spent my whole life walking up and down pavements and I've never thought of putting holes in them because that's the way we always do it. Yes. So first of all, flexperts, which I think we're getting somewhere on. I think also if you look at the innovative and creative individual, they have the ability to think afresh. They also have the ability to persevere. They have what I think of as a rubber arse. That is, they keep bouncing back from failure time and time and time again. They learn fast. They experiment fast. Um, but then the, 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 the other two dimensions where I don't think I'm so good yet, uh, and this one relies on your question, which is the ability to, well, if the first two are, a flexpertise, and the second one is can-do ease. I think the third one is other ease. That is our ability to deeply understand the mind and heart of the other. And this is a profoundly creative act because so often people are so locked into their own worldview that they don't really climb out of their world and into the head, heart, and guts of the other. 
I think that's, I mean, you very often see this in disagreement where people, the last thing they want to do is really understand the other person's point of view. They want to disagree and prove that they're right. Mm. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. A colleague was talking about an example of an elderly people's home where elderly people, particularly if they've got dementia, don't drink enough water. And, and if you've gone in with the mindset of we've got to get elderly people to drink more water, you probably would have thought about having more water fountains and so on. Uh, but this person went into the home. Uh, in fact, they had a relative there and stayed for a couple of days. And what they noticed is that these elderly people ate a lot of sweets, which gave rise to the idea of why didn't they produce quite large sweets, which, of which they loved eating lots, but which had a high water content, so a fluid inside. Yeah. So again, by not really sufficiently understanding the other person's world, their head and heart, you wouldn't really have understood, you really wouldn't have come up with that, that idea. That's, that's, that's a wonderful example, isn't it? Uh, about, about really just understanding and being able, I, I call it coming around to see the other side of the dice, you know? The, the, the sides of the dice add up to seven, um, the opposite sides. And if I'm looking at a five, that means you're looking at a two. So we need to come round and see what, what the other person is seeing. And that's, that takes some flexibility and that takes some real ability for empathy and, and understanding of others. Yeah. Um, Which is important in the customer experience uh, side of things, isn't it? And also on the employee side of things, because do you think so many leaders see things from the top down? Um, from, you know, from how they see the business and aren't necessarily appreciating the perspective that the people who work for them might have. That's a fabulous point because over the last 10 years, we've developed the Dolphin Index, which assesses how far your culture is really engaging, uh, nurturing innovation, creativity, customer care. And when you look at the profile of the top dogs, or the top dolphins, or the top dinosaurs, depending on what they are. Yes. Of course, I'd never call them a dinosaur, I only call myself the dinosaur. Uh, their perception of the culture is nearly always very positive. When you go and meet the real people, the people doing the, the, the hard work, uh, nearly always, well, in fact, always so far, their perceptions are less positive. They may still be positive, but they're far less positive. So we've never quite decided if the top dogs are deluded or if it is that they live in a rarefied atmosphere where, in fact, the culture is better. Mm. It's a beautiful example of, um, it's really interesting, when the top team says, well, can't we just fill in the Dolphin Index because then we'll have an idea of what's going on. You have to say, no way, guys, because the, the, the serious feedback comes from everybody and people further down the organisation are usually far from as enchanted as you are. Yes. Uh, which quite often comes as quite a shock. I remember one colleague reporting back to the board of one major public sector organization, and their faces continued to drop as he was feeding back more and more negative comments about, uh, about what the real employee was saying, and so much so that they fired him because they just couldn't stand the feedback. Oh, wow. You remind me of uh, the board of British Airways that for a time, I believe, employed what they caught, thought of as court jester, whose job it was to be able to say all the unacceptable things without getting his, his head chopped off. Mm. Although I do understand that in, in the end, they did come to a, in inverted commas, a, 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 an understanding or a financial agreement, which meant he went away. 
But it was at least an attempt by the top people to understand the worldviews of of others. Mm. Well, fascinating. So we'll come um, come on to the Dolphin Index again in in a few moments. So what are the other two quadrants, Mark? in fact, that, that's a wonderful example of when you say, I'm going to make five points, and then you've forgotten one, because flexibility, <laughs> I think we're quite good at. Can-do ease, I think we're quite good at. Other ease, we need... Uh, the, the, one of the concerns I have about things I might have done earlier in my career is that they might have not had as much rigor as I would like. Uh, and I now joke that we try and provide rigor without mortis. And I'm, I'm, I'm worried that... Uh, but there's quite a lot of stuff out there by way of s- programs and seminars, and workshops that people run for organizations that I think may have certain snake oil in them or may have silver bullets in them. Mm. That is, it hasn't really been rigorously assessed. And what I like to think is that we provide gems, that is stuff which is psychologically sound and organizationally useful, delivered with a wow and then that sticks for a billion years and not just a fortnight. So if you look at some of the stuff around on emotional intelligence, which is obviously to do with uh, understanding other people's worlds, some of it doesn't seem to be quite as robust as you and I, you, you and I might like. In the same way that the work on multiple intelligences uh, may not be as rigorous as certainly I would have liked to it would be, yeah. which suggested people have many different types of intelligence, because I'm very fond of the idea, in fact, passionate about the idea, that people have much more potential than they usually think. Uh, but uh, as my career has gone on, I've, I've moved from being not a, not a poacher, but something... I certainly wasn't a gamekeeper, and rather like you with your splendid PhD and your practical experience, I'm trying to get the best of my practical experience, but also doing some research where, uh, and just as dolphins like doing, proving themselves wrong, as opposed to dinosaurs who like proving themselves right. Uh, So I'd say that the other E's, the ability to understand other people's worlds, uh, I'm looking forward to getting better at that. Although you probably know of tools like uh, Kelly's repertory grid, there are tools that do help you begin to understand that you're seeing a six and the other person's seeing a two. Yes, definitely. And I, and I will put um, some links in the show notes, Mark, to some of the references that you've made. And um, we'll, we'll have a go at doing a, a fun email for people to send to the boss as well between us uh, that we can include in the show notes. So, just, yeah. Just one point you remind me of. If uh, if any anybody wants any further information, please just ask them to drop you an email, and I'll provide you with articles and, and links. For example, if people want to fill in the Dolphin Index to see how they perceive their culture, if they get in touch with you, we can provide you with access codes, and people can then try it. Also, if people want to read more of my attempt at being rigorous without the mortis, uh, if I give you an access code to my last book the dinosaur strain people can download that for free so i'm, I'm very keen in trying to get as much out there at no or low cost so that people can begin to develop cultures where people are having brilliant lives and the organization is brilliant and the world is a better place well that's that's a, that's an incredible um thing to do so thank you very much and that's it's really good quality free content i speak from 
uh, from direct experience and very, very invaluable. So I'd like to come back uh, to a couple of things. Can you say more about what you found in the Dolphin Index? What sort of companies are doing the Dolphin Index? And what really does it show? And I, I know there are a number of dimensions, so how does that work? So you've got probably three questions in one there, Mark. Uh, the, the Dolphin Index is built on the work of a really great guy who sadly died, Professor Goran Ekval, uh, a Swedish academic. And he'd been trying to understand the difference between organizations that lived a long time versus those that died. And we asked him if we could develop the work for the UK market, and, and, and now we're working with his daughter, Emily. Uh, and our research has changed quite a few of the original questions and added certain questions. So that we're, we now have 13, but we're experimenting with one or two more. Uh, and the 13 dimensions, tw 12 of which the higher you score, that is above the European norm, because we have good data for the UK, good data for Finland, and we have good data for certain sectors, for example, the housing, social housing sector in the UK. The more you score above the mean on 12 out of the 13 dimensions, and, and just very quickly to run through those, uh, there's commitment, which is to do with how passionate people are. There's freedom, which is to do with how empowered and autonomous you are. There's idea support, which is how far do people yes and you in the organization as opposed to yes but you. Do people play the game of idea assassination or do they try and nurture your creativity? Are there positive relationships where people really do connect well and deeply to each other? Is it a dynamic, vibrant, lively place to work? Uh, is there a sense of humor, a playfulness around the place? Uh, not a distracting, silly humor, or, or a humour that tells jokes against the organisation, but that there is a place for lightness at times. Uh, are levels of ideas sufficient? Is the idea proliferation? Is there a fountain of ideas? Are levels of risk, is, is sensible risk-taking really encouraged, or is all risk-taking tend, uh, tends to be seen as, as, as a negative? Uh, one very important dimension, do people feel that they have time for ideas? Because many of our more mature clients are what I'd call more right-handed. They're more into doing the immediate day job and they just may not have the time out for the creativity. Uh, the last three dimensions, is there a shared view? Do people have a common understanding and an excitement about where they're trying to get to? Are people paid fairly or ideally above uh, the, the national average? Uh, and lastly, do people get recognized for good and creative work? Now on those 12 dimensions, the higher you score, that is correlating with people saying that I see my organization as more engaging, more creative, more innovative. Uh, and it's a place I want to stay in. The one dimension where it's usually best to score at the mean or below the mean is on stress. So we usually find the dolphins tend to score highly on the 12 dimensions, but then slightly lower on the stress dimension. We're experimenting with a new dimension, which is what we're rather clumsily calling experimentality, which is our assumption that the more successful innovative organizations know how to test early, test fast, fail fast, fail for free, fail without damaging the reputation or financial well-being of the organization. Yes. Which, which is pretty commonsensical, but currently we're not measuring it. We also got a kicking in Finland for being told off that the other dimension we weren't 
measuring was how far we were in love with the customer. So we have, in, we, we, we have engaged with uh, that criticism and we now also do pick up how far are you really in love with and empathic towards the customer. Fantastic. It's, it's great to see you listening, evolving the, the tool as, as the world uh, changes and, and also gives you more feedback, which is, which is incredible. One thing um, I'd like to, to ask you about is you are the master of metaphor. And metaphor, of course, is a creativity tool in itself, isn't it? So, uh, which I think is really, really wonderful. I hear you speak about dolphins, dinosaurs, elephants, and uh, we've talked about mindscaping and heartscaping and so on. Can you tell us a bit about, about metaphor and, and how you use it and so, so well and so powerfully and give us any tips for metaphor? Yeah, well, th thanks for the compliment. Uh, in, in fact, the, the dinosaur came from one of the large British banks who, who kept referring to themselves in private conversations as, we're such a dinosaur. Uh, and so I didn't actually ha invent that one. And we, we thought for a long time, what, what would we have as the opposite end of the dimension to describe organizations that are fun, vibrant, lively, creative, and so on. And we thought of Tigger for a time of, from Winnie the Pooh but he seemed a bit sort of lightweight and, and dolphin seems to work, work quite well. Uh, I like metaphor and in fact, as you and I know, uh, the, one of the great creativity techniques is what I personally refer to as strip and stroll, uh, which is where you, you, you take a problem down to its bare essentials and you then go hunting for metaphors and analogies and to make that concrete, for example, if you and I are trying to attract and retain customers and we're having an idea session, uh, you might not alert the group to uh, that being the goal, but you might ask them just to go for what I call a blue walk, an ideas walk, where you ask them to notice everything down in the high street or out in the, out, outside that attracts and retains. Uh, and then they come back with things like... Uh, well, the sun attracts people. And then you try and map that across back into the real problem. So the, the one, one very popular school of creativity called synectics, which is, is the Greek word for combining things together, is based on that whole idea that we get a huge number of ideas by looking to remote analogies. Yes. Uh, and some people seem to be more comfortable with that. Other people prefer to be closer to the domain that you're thinking about. But usually you find that using metaphor and analogy, one, it could be a source of humor, two, it could be more memorable, but perhaps most importantly, it is the source of great insight. Yes. Uh, you, and, you, and, you, it, and it shifts the, the brain from the current way of looking at things. It, call, it, it, may, it just nudges the brain out of that track of obviousness yeah. and into a different perspective, doesn't it? And as you and I, I mean, I think we're both great fans of that uh, Open University MBA that uh, is one of the many qualifications I think you've got. Yes. Uh, they were very good at actually uh, promoting the importance of, of metaphorical thinking as, as a way of knocking you out of your everyday rut and more to give you fresh channels of thought. Mm. Uh, and I think that's one area where uh, I think of ourselves as having, n not a literal yet, but a, a dolphin lab, 
where we want to do research on which of these techniques tend to be the most effective and does it depend upon the type of problem? Does it depend upon the type of people you're working with? Does it depend upon the type of industry? <clears throat> so as, as, as I head into the autumn of my life, I'm hoping that we can actually do more research and therefore bring more rigor and feed that back to the marketplace so that people are using good science in helping themselves be more creative and innovative. That sounds excellent. And um, you, you definitely don't look like you're in the autumn of, of your life, Mark, whatsoever. That does sound like an excellent endeavor. So this has been absolutely amazing, full of, of ideas. As always, you really provoke thinking and, and fresh, uh, fresh thinking in me. So thank you very much. I'm sure that the people listening um, will find the same. How can people find out more about you, Mark? So is it email? Is it uh, the website? Are you on social media? I know that you, uh, we were talking about too much dopamine hits from social media earlier, but what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Well, first of all, uh, because you're doing such great work uh, across a range of areas, if people connect via you, that, that may make it simplest. Uh, okay. But people can, can uh, uh, if they go to uh, dolphinindex.org, they can see a website that's in need of updating. Uh, if they contact mark at dolphinindex.org, they can ask for, I mean, for example, uh, in terms of helping organizations create more ideas-rich workplaces, we probably have collected now over 100 ideas, 100 levers for how you make that workplace more creative and innovative. So if people want access so that they can fill in the Dolphin Index themselves, which takes about 10 minutes, and you get instant feedback anonymously, obviously, as to how you score, if you get in touch with us, we'll get in touch with you, we'll give you access to the Dolphin Index, we'll give you some background articles, we'll give you uh, 100 levers, and we're delighted to do that with no charge at all. Uh, because, uh, I mean, the world needs healthy economies and and and... and the more we can do to help organizations be successful and in innovative, uh, not only are people actually having better lives, but the state actually has more money to spend. So we're, we're, we're passionate about the whole creativity innovation journey because it makes for a better world. Mm -hmm. uh, just one slight, well, it's not an aside. Uh, the, the Dolphin Index, I sometimes say, is capturing uh, the energy of what I call the five C's, which is... Uh, how crazy about work are people, how creative are people, how can-do are people, how caring are people. But the fifth C is about conscious. Uh, and I think there are more and more organizations that are beginning to get uh, clear in their minds that they want to be innovative, but it's not at any cost. It's stuff which is good for the world and good for people. Uh, so I do think that that whole passion for, for being innovative and creative but in a way which is good for the whole world and not just for the short-term bottom line of your own organization is a great trend nationally and internationally. Mm. That's, that's, that's a really good positive note on which to end, Mark. So thank you very, very much. I've absolutely loved our conversation as always. I'm looking to see you, looking for, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the Idea Time Live experience in Harrogate on the 7th of February. Some people might be listening in the future. Uh, so thank you very much and I will see you soon. Uh, Joe, or, or rather Dr. Yes, 
thank you very much indeed and lovely to be with you and really look forward to being with you in Harrogate. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Idea Time podcast brought to you by Dr. Joe North. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. For even more strategies and advice, visit our website, ideatime.co.uk. Enter your email for leading insights, resources, and more every month completely free. We'll see you next time.